30 minutes to present us the main ideas behind the paper and perhaps tell us a little bit about the motivation as well. Mm -hmm. um, then I will sort of make a few comments by means of kicking the discussion, but I would like to uh, involve our audience in, the, in these discussions and try and engage with you in sort of the way that we see these issues in Europe. Uh, of course, Europe is not one thing, mm -hmm. it's many different things, and I'm hoping that we can get a little bit of flavour, particularly for you, of, of the differences in the way that we perceive all these things um, in this side of the pond. So, Without further ado, why don't you give us the main gist? Excellent. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Uh, do we have the clicker? Uh, uh, the clicker is on the... Okay, uh, gotcha. So first of all, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> for coming. Uh, they need to put it first there. Okay. We, uh, well, I will start and... Uh, whoops. There we go. So... Law and Macroeconomics. Uh, the book will be out very shortly. Uh, I don't need to tell you much about the, the Great Recession. You, you lived through it. Uh, but one thing I like to emphasize, recessions are, are bad not only because there's a vast amount of lost output, but I'm especially concerned about things like hysteresis and, uh, and things that are much longer lasting. Or, even worse than hysteresis in many ways is just the threat that they pose to the social and political order. Uh, and certainly in my country, we've, uh, we've, we've seen that. Uh, we've seen things that we, we never expected uh, to happen before. So, uh, so I, will, I will stop at that. Uh, there are other times to, to discuss that. What do you do? if there is an acute recession or depression that is prompted by, uh, by a shortage of aggregate demand, if people just stop spending. Uh, so there's a bunch of possible responses that have been mooted. One, which I would say is the sort of long, the, the most common historical response in the 19th century, was to wait it out. Uh, so if you're on a gold standard and you have a very small government, uh, and there's a financial crisis followed by a long economic crisis, uh, you basically hope that it ends before something very bad happens. Uh, and, uh, and, and I don't want to be too, too harsh or curt on this because it's, if you're pessimistic enough about institutional responses to this, then, then, uh, then you may think that that's not a very good response, but it is something that can be done. So that's one. Uh, I uh, will come back to it later. The dominant response in the Great Recession was monetarism. Was we, we concentrate? Who manages the macroeconomy? It is the central bank. Uh, and Milton Friedman, fam famously amongst many others, said, uh, basically, keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing. Uh, until you don't have a recession anymore, or you don't have deflation anymore, or that type of thing. Uh, and as an intellectual matter, we very much saw this during the crisis. Uh, we, you know, in the US and almost every developed democracy, we saw vast expansions of central bank balance sheets. Uh, trillions of dollars were, uh, were created. Uh, but as I'm sure many of you know, at the zero lower bound, it turns out that monetarism, uh, even with massive balance sheet expansions, uh, we think it helps, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't help that much. 
it's, it's better than doing nothing, I think, uh, but, but it's very much constrained. It also, as I'll say, there are legal constraints. And then the other primary response is fiscal policy. Uh, this is the Keynesian tradition, raise spending, uh, reduce taxation to promote aggregate demand. Uh, I, I don't really want to say anything negative or, or much more than I already have about these things, but suffice it to say that these options are regularly limited. Limited by economic factors such as the zero lower bound, uh, limited by a shared currency in which one economy may not be following the same trend as, uh, as the rest of the currency union, therefore making monetary policy very hard to target to that economy. And fiscal policy itself has all sorts of dangers, uh, and many places restrict fiscal policy by something like the Growth and Stability Compact here, or in the US, uh, 49 out of 50 states have uh, balanced budget requirements. And those are, they're not 100% binding, but they're pretty constricting, uh, such that many US states reduce spending by a lot in the, uh, in the Great Recession and its aftermath. Okay, where does law come in? So I, I see the book as having two purposes. One is, and this is the primary purpose, is to argue that in addition to monetary and fiscal policy, there is a third set of stimulus options in the form of law and regulation, and administration more generally, uh, that haven't really been pursued, but uh, are worth considering, and if the situation's warranted, and if the other options are limited enough, they should be pursued. That's one. Two is even within our conventional measures of, of macroeconomics, monetary and fiscal policy, or even doing nothing, they're often themselves very much constrained by law. They're creatures of law. Uh, and I don't think enough has been, there, there has not been enough sort of conversation between the lawyers and the people in charge of those policies in terms of, of making law a more integral part of, of the making of monetary or fiscal policy. So to give a couple of examples. First of all, why has monetary policy become uh, in Europe and elsewhere the, the dominant mechanism of macroeconomic policy management? And one thing I like to emphasize is that it is not anything about economics. We don't argue that changing interest rates changes aggregate demand more or less necessarily than direct government spending. That's not the argument. The argument is that it's institutionally superior. It's legally superior. Uh, we've created an institution with incredible independence, with incredible, uh, with a lot of expertise, a, a true sort of technocratic, uh, a technocratic gem uh, that that's why we manage the macroeconomy there. And I would say that at least when it comes to raising and lowering interest rates, that has become sort of politically pretty well settled. Uh, most people, it was not always well settled. There's still in the US, uh, I don't know how much in Europe, a real sort of gold standard crowd uh, that is, uh, that always lurks. 
Uh, so, uh, so there's that. And then on the other side, there's also the, there's a lot of crowd that, there, there's a crowd, which includes our president, uh, that, uh, that thinks, that don't like central bank independence and find it, uh, find it very troublesome. So it's always operating on kind of either side of, uh, uh, of, uh, of the law. And the law is both protecting it uh, and, but one thing I just want to emphasize is that in law, we're, this is a common problem. Uh, we often delegate items to technocrats. Uh, and why do we do that? We do that because we desire the expertise, the insulation from the political process. But in law, that's the beginning of the conversation. Uh, because any organization that has these properties, the independence and the, uh, the expertise, is suffering from a, a lack of legitimacy. And we do tens of things to try to enhance that legitimacy. But if there's one thing that we want to emphasize, it's that the it's incredibly important for these technocratic areas of, uh, of governance to be very precise and careful about their limits. Uh, that, that's sort of the ch chief trade-off, at least from the, the law literature on delegation to agencies. It's, it can be a good thing, uh, but in order to retain you know, your fundamentally democratic and legitimate character, there need to be lines. So, and, as you well know, that constrained monetary policy. Uh, we'll talk about how much. So in, particularly here in Europe. In Europe, uh, the European Central Bank has lots of, uh, has lots of limitations. Uh, that monetary financing is famously prohibited. Uh, it's not clear exactly what that means. It cannot mean, of course, that, uh, that the European Central Bank can't own any sovereign bonds, right? That's how monetary policy is conducted, by buying and selling bonds in the ordinary course. You couldn't be a central bank without owning some bonds. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't mean anything. At some point, uh, let's say the European Central Bank owned all the sovereign bonds and continued financing deficits uh, as far as the eye can see. That would be monetary financing under any definition. And uh, you know, if, the, if, if, if Article 123 is to mean anything, it, it at least means you can't do that. And of course, there's a vast policy, in, there's, a vast, there's a lot of room in between. Uh, and as you can, uh, I'll first talk about QE, then I'll get into uh, OMT. So QE, this is a Bruegel graph, just kind of pointing out that, uh, as you all know, that uh, the ECB has been expanding its holdings of, uh, of government bonds at an unprecedented level. I don't want to argue that this is illegal. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think law works that way. It's not uh, too often law is turned into yes or no. When I, I think that, more importantly, law should be about explaining and giving principles how you're deciding. So why I, and I think, and I think Geweiler, the, uh, the case of course where the OMT program, probably the most successful unconventional monetary policy program ever, uh, was challenged in the German constitutional court and, uh, and ultimately the, the program was upheld by the European Court of Justice. You know, you know all this. Uh, but uh, 
But I actually think the case itself served a beneficial function. It pushed the European Central Bank to articulate a lot more clearly than it had sort of how it saw the program, uh, what the limits of that program were, why the program existed. And I would even say that, uh, that it could have done even more. So the argument is not that the European Central Bank, uh, at some point there are some things that the European Central Bank can't do. But what that is, in, in law we're very interested in proportionality, it's time sensitive. This may be legal, this massive increase, in, and now I'm switching to QE here. Uh, QE may be legal to protect the Eurozone, uh, if you think the Eurozone will fall apart, because that is the underlying sort of purpose of the European Central Bank. But if, if they said that we don't need this to preserve the Eurozone, but we kind of just want the economy to work a little better, that might be illegal, right? So there, there's an explicit sort of line. Uh, there, there, there's constantly, it, there's a conversation between law and macroeconomics. And for that conversation to really go on, it needs to be articulated. So I thought the Geweiler case, uh, at least for some of that articulation, uh, I wish the European Court of Justice had kind of engaged in this conversation a little more. And I wish that the, the European Central Bank had issued a little bit more on QE, just kind of explaining how they saw this in the context of their legal limitations. There were, there's a press conference here and there, but, but it's, it's hard to figure out. And to lawyers, like, we need to kind of see how you're thinking. Even if you know, any line is ultimately arbitrary, we need to know how you're thinking. So that's, uh, that's what I would say. There needs to be, and the bottom line is, you know, at some point, the ECB needs to explain, like, there is a line, where is that line, and when won't you ever cross it? I'm not saying the line, they've, they've hit that line yet. I don't think so. But at some point, uh, a line needs to exist, and articulating that is, uh, is pretty important. It doesn't have to be precise, but it just needs to be a sense of how we would think about where our line is. And that would enhance the ECB's legitimacy. Uh, okay. Uh, so much for monetary policy. Fiscal policy. In, the Euro in Europe, discretionary fiscal policy, discretionary stimulus, highly constrained by the Stability and Growth Pact. Uh, but automatic stimulus, okay, where, where government spending and taxation, government spending goes up, taxation goes down automatically in business cycles, uh, automatically in bus, and, uh, and then moves the opposite direction, and boom. That is very open. And when you look, and here I'm going to speak about the U.S. more, when you look with a legal lens at sort of American tax and spending policy, often we've created these sort of weird hybrids, uh, such as tax expenditures. And tax expenditures, for example, often these weird hybrids have important macroeconomic implications for automatic stability, or, or lack thereof, that have been underemphasized. So an example I'll give you from the US is, let's take unemployment insurance. So unemployment insurance in the US is, is experience rated. So that means in, in the bust, there were an enormous number of layoffs. Uh, after a lot of layoffs, uh, the the rate that employers have to pay for unemployment insurance, it's a mandated rate set by the state, goes up because in their last whatever years, they've laid off many more people. 
What did that mean in the U.S. recovery? That meant that in 2010, uh, hiring in the U.S., in most states, was very expensive. Because each person you hired, you owed a lot of unemployment insurance on because you were experience rated. So we have this weird property at a time where we want the government encouraging uh, new employment. We have this sort of unintentional property that the rates they were playing for unemployment insurance was higher than it had ever been uh, in the past. And there's some very good evidence from the US that this really reduced hiring. Uh, because you know, it, it added a substantial amount, especially at relatively low wages. Uh, it just made hiring a bad thing when, of course, we wanted government policy working the opposite way. This was not intentional, but this is what happened. A careful look at policy after policy after policy is very much warranted to kind of mitigate the effects of these and many, many other, I can cite to many different examples, government uh, policies. So that's something I really encourage, uh, I encourage in state after state. And then finally, of course, well, what if it just doesn't work? What if you've maximized, you've taken your monetary policy as far as it can go, perhaps even farther uh, than you would ever want it to go in, in ordinary circumstances? You've pushed your fiscal policy as far as it can go uh, on the legal lines, and it may be in many places, forget about the legal lines. In Greece, let's say uh, Greece doesn't have much fiscal space, whether or not there's a troika or no, tro no troika. It would be very hard for Greece to finance, uh, to finance government budget deficits uh, in the euro or outside of the euro. Uh, so what do you do? Uh, so my under to the extent people have done anything, I think they're mostly like grinned and bared. Uh, you know, like you wait it out. In internal devaluation is one way to uh, is is one way it's something described, which is a fancy word for uh, for just bear it. You know, grin, bear it, hope it ends soon. Uh, I want to uh, I want to argue that law offers a whole suite of policies that have uh, that have potentially useful countercyclical properties. I'll start with something that I think is reasonably well established. So, and what is that? Uh, Macroprudential financial regulation. So up until the, I'd say the Great Recession really, financial regulation was not sensitive to the business cycle. It was, we had like Basel I, Basel II, there were constraints. Uh, on, uh, on how much capital a bank should hold and many, many other such things. And, you know, they applied in good times and in bad. Uh, and, uh, and sometimes they were more binding, sometimes they were less binding. Now, under Basel III, uh, and it's being implemented in more and more places, financial regulation is explicitly countercyclical. It is in uh, leverage constraints, capital constraints, uh, are now, at least in theory, higher in the boom than they are in the bust. Uh, and so, uh, so in a, where leverage is increasing uh, rapidly, we can imagine the central bank introducing uh, limitations on, uh, on the amounts of a home, for example, that is financed by lending, uh, loan-to-value ratios. 
Uh, and we can imagine them re relaxing those in a bust where you're trying to, uh, where you're trying to encourage finance. So that is law sort of explicitly adjusting from the business cycle for macroeconomic reasons. Like that is the, uh, the idea we're trying to use. It's not monetary policy traditionally conceived. Uh, in many countries, financial regulation is not the province of the central bank. In some it is, but in others it isn't. Uh, but it is law sort of, and it's a reasonably well-established thing that, uh, that we do that. Now, if that is true, what I argue in the book is, if that is true for financial regulation, that is just the tip of the iceberg. Law is an incredibly powerful determinant of spending. If we sat down and thought about how we can apply law towards stimulating private demand or public demand, we could stimulate economies without increasing debt and, uh, of course, financial regulation, we can stimulate economies without increasing debt, but it applies to many, many other places. I will discuss a few of them right now. Uh, the simplest way to promote private spending is just to mandate it. Uh, so, you know, if no one is spending, you can literally mandate uh, spending. In the U.S., uh, we had Obamacare. Right? So Obamacare, what did it do? It's a spending mandate. Every person is required to obtain health insurance if they don't get it from somewhere else. That is a mandate to spend, and indeed, that's how our Supreme Court has understood it. Uh, and, and for some people, that reduces savings. Right? There were people who were going without insurance, uh, and Obamacare made that illegal. Uh, and they reduced their savings uh, in the, uh, it so happened in the bust, to increase, uh, and they increased their spending. So Obamacare uh, is, is an example. We can imagine other such examples. Home weatherization requirements, or home environmental requirements, uh, building environmental requirements. If you increase those in a bust, and you say, like, every building has to be energy efficient at a certain level, that is a way of promoting spending. If you try to aim those types of things in a, uh, in a bust, you will promote aggregate demand. Uh, it's the equivalent of an increase in taxation com combined with a government spending program uh, that, it, that fully offsets the taxation. And since some amount would have otherwise have been saved, you're going to increase aggregate demand. I can explain that further if people are interested in the Q&A. Uh, great, thank you. Uh, other examples. Bankruptcy law is, uh, so one, one important determinant of aggregate demand in, in bus is the inability of of, debt, of, of debtors to spend and to access credit. Uh, bankruptcy law uh, ha can play a big role in determining these. One of the arguments, uh, there's a long literature now in the US on kind of the negative spirals associated with foreclosure and bankruptcy uh, and what that does to neighborhoods and to the people who have been foreclosed upon with homes uh, or just like tough bankruptcy laws. Uh, and that is, so there's an argument 
uh, very much actually along the lines of the financial of the macro prudential countercyclical financial regulation argument for for countercyclical bankruptcy laws, where bankruptcy laws are uh, are sort of more generous to the debtor in bus, uh, where you're trying to delever quickly, uh, and then tougher in uh, in booms, where where actually deleveraging is not something to be wished. Uh, because uh, because that's the problem. Uh, we we people are uh, we want to restrict the uh, access to credit. So bankruptcy law is another parallel tool that can be used. It is not currently being used, but at least in the U.S., there's quite a lot of discretion for bankruptcy judges. They use it all the time for all sorts of things, uh, but uh, but it can be used in uh, in. In, in, in bus, and famously in the US, the Chrysler bankruptcy uh, was functionally changed bankruptcy law in order to allow Fiat Chrysler to, uh, to continue. And I think most people now consider that a, a great success. There was, without the government a support, and normally we think of that as fiscal policy, right? Government support. But it wasn't just fiscal policy. It was also changing bankruptcy law to enable that government support. Uh, that, I think, now is viewed as a success. It's a, it's a successful company. It might well have been liquidated. And now you know, it's, uh, it's, quite a, uh, it's considered quite a success. And then as you start looking, you start seeing these things all over the place, uh, these things that could be altered. So one thing that's not obvious, I think, to many people uh, but when you hear it, maybe it should be is utility regulation. So utility regulation in the U.S. you know is on the order of you know of a few percentage points of GDP, right? Uh, you know five six percent something like that altogether. And and the way it works in the U.S. <coughs> I, I realize that there's more sort of variation in in Europe is more or less, to a first approximation, it's more complicated than this, but to a first approximation, utilities in the, in the US are guaranteed a rate of return. Uh, so when they're doing poorly, they apply for rate increases. And when they're doing well, uh, the government regulator is much less likely to approve uh, a rate increase because they say, you know, you're earning your cost of capital plus. That has a perverse property very much like unemployment insurance. What does it mean? In the US, in the last two or three recessions, utility prices have tend to go, have, have gone up. Why? Because what has happened is electricity demand, natural gas demand, utility demand in general goes down in recessions, right? As does demand for everything else. Uh, utility revenues go down in concert. They the vast majority of their costs are fixed, or a very high percentage of their costs are fixed, right? The power plants still exist. The, uh, the transmission lines still exist. The network still exists. So their rates of return go down. They go to the regulator. They say, we need to raise rates. The regulator, who's looking at their return on capital, says, yes, you can. You do raise it. And then, of course, in a boom, they're making good rates of return. Uh, the regulator starts restraining them in much more. Uh, now, what does this mean? Utility rates are actually a much bigger deal in the US 
for, for the bottom 50% of the population by income, they pay much more in utilities than they do in income taxes, right? Uh, income taxes are really for the well-to-do in the US after credits and things like that are done. But utilities are, uh, are a very substantial expense for the poor. So what has been happening in the US? What's been happening in the US is that rates go up in a bust, reducing spending by the, uh, by, the, by the poor, and then they go down in the boom, increasing spending by the poor. It's, it's a pro-cyclical policy, right? Normally, if we, if we were thinking about how we would want to design utility regulation for the business cycle, we'd want the, we'd want the opposite. Now, you can't just unilaterally lower utility prices and say, like, great, uh, problem solved. The utilities do need to earn their cost of capital. But what I would argue for is, rather than saying they need to earn their cost of capital year by year, instead, they need to earn their cost of capital over the course of the cycle. So in bad, in bad years, they will earn less. In good years, they will earn more. What you've done is you've moved some of the recession risk from the, from the consumers of utilities, who are, you know, who are disproportionately, as a percentage of income, poor, to utility investors. And you can't get rid of recession risk, but I would argue that that is a, a beneficial risk transfer. That utility investors, who clearly, by definition, have access to capital, are better able to bear the risk of a recession than what we call hand-to-mouth consumers who are just meeting uh, one bill after another. Uh, so this is, and I'll just use one last example and then I'll finish. Or you know what, I'll just finish here because I see I'm running out of time. But there's all sorts of different things. Ideally, these would be enacted in advance by the legislature. Uh, the legislature could indicate to the utility regulator that we now have a more sort of business cycle balanced view of what rates of return are in utilities or uh, of what bankruptcy law should be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, there's also a lot of legal and regulatory discretion that even, even if it's not, if it has not been passed down by the legislature, there's less room for the, for the judges and regulators to do this, but there certainly remains some room. So, so to conclude, uh, we'll talk a lot about the harms associated with that, like why this will be difficult. Uh, I want to say that I think it's complicated enough that you only want to do this when you're kind of out of options. Uh, so I, I agree with the consensus that monetary policy is better in ordinary times. It's just not available at the effective lower bound. Uh, nor is it available, let's say there's a European country that is really struggling when the rest of the zone is, uh, is doing well. Uh, that, uh, and fiscal policy may well be foreclosed there too. We have to give them something. I would argue that one of the things we can give them is, uh, is expansionary legal policy. And what it does is it makes macroeconomic policy more robust to a failure in an institution. Uh, now, when I say failure, I don't mean that the people in charge of that institution did anything wrong. 
It's just that we were afraid of too much power in any one institution. So we may prefer sort of being able to handle any problem uh, in a distributed way than sort of putting all our eggs in one basket only to find that that basket is constrained uh, for whatever reason. Uh, so I can talk later about, uh, about, about other forms of, more intensive forms of expansionary legal policy, including price controls. Uh, but, uh, but those are for really desperate situations. I'll just conclude by, by just summing up. So law offers an important but overlooked tool of monetary and fiscal policy, both in understanding how to make it more effective but also in understanding how far it can go uh, and making it more legitimate. Secondly, it offers a whole suite of macroeconomic tools that have not been explored that I think offer some real potential uh, to stimulate depressed economies when our conventional tools are just not working. So I look, very much look forward to your questions and thanks so much. Okay, thank you. This is uh, this is wonderful. Thank you for uh, for for presenting this uh, these okay. issues. Um, I will maybe offer a few thoughts by uh -huh. means of starting the conversation. Mm -hmm. Then uh, I would like uh, for uh, for our audience also to be involved in here. So I started uh, looking at the book very much from the, your last perspective. The perspective mm -hmm. is that uh, our traditional tools in microeconomics are severely bound, mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, what do we do next? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, this is how I sort of saw the book. Mm -hmm. But but actually, the beginning of your presentation, you actually offered other motivations as well, which I think mm -hmm. are very valid. But I came very much from that point. Mm -hmm. And in particularly in Europe, the US is less so, but in Europe, because of EMU, because of, of the monetary union, but also because we are at that point in our, in our cycle where, and of course our macroeconomic magnitudes are at that point, where both fiscal policy and monetary policy are severely constrained. Mm -hmm. On the monetary policy, we are constrained in a slightly more structural way. Mm -hmm. You know, we are probably going to be on a zero low bound for a long time. Mm -hmm. So there, what do we do there? So there we require a lot more imaginative uh, policies on the monetary side, but in any case, the traditional monetary policy in the way that we knew it till now is going to be constrained. And on the fiscal side, we have such big uh, fiscal positions right now that it's very difficult to think of how we can actually use fiscal policy in any meaningful way without seriously jeopardizing mm -hmm. the health of our states. Um, so, so this is my starting point, and then I said, okay, but this is this is great. Then here is an imaginative way of of, of going down the way. What do we do next? Now. Um, so once you start thinking about this, then you're really thinking on the business cycle frequency. And actually my comment, my main comment in all its forms is going to be about that, about okay. the, the business okay. cycle frequency. Um, because when I started reading bits of the book, and I haven't read the whole book, but when I started reading bits of the book in the way that you were talking, you were touching on issues that in this part of town we describe as structural reforms. Uh -huh. and structural reforms typically require law endorsement, so you, you need to take changes in the economy that are going to have to be through legislation. Okay. So they are no longer the business cycle uh, feature, the frequency. They are much more a structural reform, a way of changing the economy, the incentive structures of the economy, in order to allow it to respond more flexibly uh, 
in crisis or in the business cycle downturns as, as they arise, right? Um, but then I got a little bit muddled. Then are we talking about the business cycle uh, frequency or are we talking about structural reforms? If we are talking about structural uh, reforms, then, then then we're having two parallel conversations because monetary policy and fiscal policy are not about the structure of the economy. They are about how do you bring back the economy to its equilibrium, right? The equilibrium is defined by the structural reform, by law issues, and then around that, as shocks hit the economy, then we use the tools. Now, of course, we can't use the tools, so then we have to use the underlying structures to change the flexibility of the economy to respond to, to certain things. But I think you're taking the conversation a, a step further, and you're saying, no, no, you can actually use some of the structural reform implied tools, namely law, to manage the business cycle as well. And that's what makes the whole, this book actually quite interesting in this respect. So here, I, 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 you've given a number of examples in your presentation which I think fit very nicely. You talked about the designing of law. Mm -hmm. So in the financial regulation, this is a very clear example of how you can design mm -hmm. the law that you apply in a way that is clearly counter-cyclical. Mm -hmm. And also, your utilities example is an example, is a proposal that could serve this purpose. But, but but I still think that there is an issue of how can you then use the change the law mm -hmm. at the business cycle frequency mm -hmm. and be effective at the same time. Mm -hmm. Now, here you, you talked about spending mandates. For example, the uh, Obamacare. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to think that the Obamacare is not a, a cyclical no, <laughs> measure. Not. I mean, it's not going to be taken mm -hmm. out in mm -hmm. the upside, no. right? I mean, this is, and also the motivation of Obamacare, I find it very hard to believe that this was. No. A spending, a spending, it was very much a welfare-driven mm -hmm. thing, and therefore it's here to stay. Mm -hmm. So that's very much a structural thing. Well, unless, of course, okay. in other generations decide that mm -hmm. this is not the right way. But also environmental requirements that you use as an mm -hmm. example, in my view, are not there to promote aggregate demand. Mm -hmm. Even if they do so in the mm -hmm. short term, they are there because you're dealing mm -hmm. with a structural issue of climate mm -hmm. change, and therefore, in my view, it would be a mistake to consider environmental requirements mm -hmm. as spending requirements. Um, uh, I think the, the, the issue of, and then of course the bankruptcy law, I think the bankruptcy law is one that is extremely interesting, simply mm -hmm. because we are in the middle of it in, in, in the European mm -hmm. Union. Uh, we dealt uh, after the crisis with a very, some, not all the countries the same way, but many countries had huge problems of the non-performing loans, uh, both on the, on the households and on the firms. And actually we have seen that the bankruptcy law, the way the countries dealt with these types of issues, those that had very lenient bankruptcy laws managed to deal with it. Those who didn't have lenient laws or very outdated forms did not manage to, do, to deal with it. So again, the bankruptcy law is something that can help in times of crisis, mm -hmm. but then we're talking about readjusting the economy mm -hmm. to deal with, with mm -hmm. big problems. We're talking about crises. Greece is another case. This is a, a country in crisis, not a country that is out of tools to manage its business cycle. Mm -hmm. That is a different thing. And then you can use law issues like reforming of the bankruptcy law to try and to increase the flexibility of the economy, mm -hmm. but in no sense are you managing the cycle, mm -hmm. right? And I think, uh, and that, of course, then raises the question, so what if you were to use the law to manage the cycle? I am not a lawyer myself, but I, I, would, I would argue that one of the biggest advantages, one of the biggest provisions that law gives us is certainty and predictability. Um, and, you know, if you're an investor and you know that the law uh, can't change in a predictable ways across the, the cycle, how willing would you be to invest? So while you can design the law to be pro-cyclical, if you were to use the law as an instrument to manage the downturn, I think you will harm 
uh, investment uh, decisions that actually require the certainty of many years before you can make the commitment. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the same thing is, is on the bankruptcy law. You know, if you're on the debtor-creditor uh, relation, if you were under the impression as a creditor that the bankruptcy law is going to be adjusted as the mm -hmm. needs arise mm -hmm. to serve creative destruction, to serve mm -hmm. the boostness of the economy and dynamism, mm -hmm. how willing would you be mm -hmm. to actually issue the credit in advance. Mm -hmm. And actually, there is some evidence here in, in the US in particular where you have the, do, you have the, the states that require um, mm -hmm. are very lenient on the bankruptcy laws and those that are not lenient. And actually, the, the literature is not decided whether lenient bankruptcy law actually helps the creation of new credit, or it doesn't. I think we all agree that it helps in times of crisis. Mm -hmm. So it, it resolves you know, bad debts, mm -hmm. unproductive debts. Mm -hmm. Uh, once you've reached that stage. Uh -huh. um, but I think Exander to say that you can use a bankruptcy law in a way uh -huh. that you can manage the cycle is actually, you know, and here's a question to you, uh -huh. it can actually harm uh, the... Uh, uh -huh. um, uh, by taking away the certainty and predictability mm -hmm. that the law structures actually give us. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that is my, my main point is, uh, while I do see uh, that you can use the law, the design of the law, mm -hmm. to operate in counter-cyclical fashion, and you gave very compelling examples in my view, I'm, I'm still not, not clear how you can use the law, changes in the law, mm -hmm. at this business cycle frequency, uh, to, um, uh, to actually deal with the cycle. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so that's something that you can change it in order to sort of fasten, if you like, reduce the amplitude of, uh, of a cycle. Now, that's not about crisis, right? The crisis is different. When you're in a crisis, you talk about depression. If you are talking about a crisis and the financial crisis, the great recession we saw in the last 10 years, is hopefully only once in a generation type mm -hmm. of crisis. There, I think you can legitimately talk mm -hmm. about the law coming mm -hmm. in as an instrument, but it's not something that is going to be taken away in the next. 20 years, mm -hmm. well, in the next business cycle, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, because that would be quite distortionary, uh, mm -hmm. in my view, in terms of the business environment mm -hmm. and, and, and the way that we do business. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's, that really is my main point. I think there is a lot of details in, in, your, in, your, in some of the examples that fit, fit that distinction, the business cycle versus the structural mm -hmm. uh, frequency. Um, but I would, I would like to have your mm -hmm. views on how, how you see sure. the law as a sort of a, mm -hmm. sort of a non-core for certainty mm -hmm. and, and uh, the business environment. No, thank you. The ideally, and here the like Basel III is a good example. So you make a structural change once <coughs> that enables greater flexibility with the business cycle. Exactly. So, so that's the idea. Basel III enacted sort of macro, counter cyclical macro prudential regulations. We could do that in other places. Uh, so it, it wouldn't just always be, the analogy here is a difference almost between like automatic and discretionary fiscal policy. So with automatic policy, you change the tax law in a way that makes it more counteract the, uh, so the goal here is to rather than just like changing bankruptcy law constantly or changing uh, utility regulation constantly, that you change it once uh, in a way that people see, and then it can sort of thereafter respond to, uh, to, to the business cycle. Uh, and then on the things that you sort of talk about, like these are long-term regulations. Uh, so environmental regulations, uh, Obamacare, things like that. Agreed, yep. agreed. Uh, now, but that doesn't mean that on the margins 
we want to do the same thing. So just to, give you, to make the analogy again, in the long run, fiscal policy needs to be something like balanced, right? Or, you know, with some consistent as a, as a percentage of GDP. And in the long run, we want fiscal policy to sort of maximize the value of public goods and things like that. Like we have sort of clear, the, the Samuelson rule for the, uh, for, the econo for the economists out there, like we want, to, we want to have like efficient, microeconomically efficient public spending, sort of long run structural reforms. We want, we want public spending to raise the value of, uh, of, of, of output or just like well-being uh, in, over the long run. But, but Keynes's intervention was that, yes, and. There's also, so he, Keynes, I don't think, would have said that, uh, get rid of that goal. He'd say, like, th that's still an important goal. But at a, at a business cycle frequency, the, uh, we don't just adhere to that goal. Spending that would not have made sense you know, in 2005, didn't make sense in 2010 or 2011, right? If he famously said, dig up all, you know, dig holes and fill them up, but, uh, but we don't have to go that far, right? Projects that were on the margin uh, in, uh, in ordinary times become potentially desirable during the, uh, during the bust, during the recession, because of all the slack capacity. We can say something similar about, let's say, environmental regulations. So, uh, so the idea is that, let's say something on balance in ordinary times, the cost-benefit analysis is just on the border uh, in ordinary times, right? It's like it has a lot of benefits to society, but it also harms the environment in, in a way such that we're really kind of torn. And now a great, you know, a terrible recession comes to pass. Where, uh, where there's a lot of unemployment. That can flip the cost-benefit analysis. Right? The cost-benefit analysis, when there's a lot of unemployment, may be that not only are we getting all the benefits we, from this project we would have gotten in 2005, we can kind of build this project, if we build it now, at a fraction of the social cost that we could otherwise. So just like we would lower taxes in a bust because we want to promote uh, private spending, even though we kind of know that in the long run, this is, uh, we need to keep these things in rough balance. There's something similar that we could do with respect to, uh, to environmental regulation or to something else, just because, again, the timing, it's just responding to two different cycles. Uh, neither is dominant, right? It'd be ridiculous to say that, to heck with the environment uh, in, uh, in a bust. Uh, but I don't think it's unreasonable to say that if we can get something built now uh, and reduce the unemployment in our country and re retain the system, that on the margins that something can be that something can be done, and and that's sort of how I uh, how I see this. Uh, and so, for example, one thing that's very much in discretion is like how long do businesses have to uh, to comply with regulations? Uh, so that's something that's highly discretionary. Uh, but that in a bust, we want to force them to do it now because we don't want them delaying for four years. Do it now. In a boom, 
You know, there's, we want them to kind of do it whenever they're good and ready. Uh, and so like these are the type of sort of levers. These are not magic bullets, but they are, but there's enough there that I think cumulatively you can help. And depending on how aggressive you want to be, you can do even more. Okay, well, uh, I have a few more points, but perhaps we can collect questions from, from the audience and come back to that. Uh, can we have the microphone here, question, in the middle, and there are three questions. Um, I hope we can come back to the issue, there is a gentleman okay. over there. I hope we can come back to the issue of bankruptcy, because I think mm -hmm. that's, <laughs> the, the insolvency mm -hmm. law has been mm -hmm. of interest to you. Yeah. Please introduce yourself and, yeah. Luis Martínez from Actualidad Económica. Well, thank you very much, I thought. Some of your thoughts were very useful. Uh, for example, when you mentioned about uh, macroprudential regulation, would have been extremely useful in, uh, before the boom of 2008. However, in some of the other um, areas you mentioned, uh, you get involved in a lot of uh, redistributional effects, uh, which are difficult to judge. For example, you mentioned the, the utility case. Mm -hmm. But if you, you, when you raise the, the prices of utilities during the recession, uh, obviously you, you have better profits and maybe you have more investment than, if, than the other way around. Than, than, than if you shift uh, uh, income to, to consumers. So you get involved into complex uh, redistributional multiplier effects which are very difficult to value. And just one example, you mentioned that uh, some policies go to hack during the, during the recession, right? Uh, one clear example is competition policy. Mm -hmm. uh, during the 30s, and, and even now, uh, people have forgotten about competition policy, cartons and whatever they want. Now, again, here you get into, in, into redistribution and multiplier effects which are interesting. I mean, what is better, to have lower prices or to have lower prices, uh, higher prices, more profits, or more investment? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, question here at the middle. Yes, I have a short remark. My name is uh, my name is Louis Bannon. I happen to be also the economist. So mm -hmm. um, there are different theories of the business cycle mm -hmm. that identify differently what the root cause mm -hmm. of the business cycle is. Mm -hmm. So a different opinion about the cause will also lead mm -hmm. to a different opinion about what mm -hmm. the appropriate remedy is for mm -hmm. the business cycle. So one misunderstanding about the Austrian theory is uh, that it is not true that they say that we can do nothing. Uh, the idea is that things go wrong during the boom. So mm -hmm. the, the um, appropriate uh, way or is, uh, to fight a recession is to prevent the boom. Mm -hmm. The boom is when the misallocation mm -hmm. occurs and then the reallocation mm -hmm. is during the recession. Mm -hmm. So when you start using the law during the recession, they would say you are curing the symptoms and not mm -hmm. fighting the root cause of the mm -hmm. business cycle. So that's what we're doing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. And then one last question here and come back to okay. yeah. Okay. I have a couple of questions. Can um, we have just one? Because the, <laughs> we don't have much time. First, a comment. Then. Yeah. Allow me to make a comment. Um, you are assuming in your uh, analysis mm -hmm. that public spending is always good, even in in any type of crisis. If we study Japan, we've seen that public spending has not been necessarily good or hasn't pulled out the country from the crisis for stagnation for two, two decades. So, 
that becomes very political, as what has been said before, we are not sure that these are actually the solutions to the problem. So to what extent we should submit the law to uh, political decisions? And that makes you know, the legal uncertainty issue that also Maria raised before. And, and my question, and the second question was, uh, what about private law solutions? I mean, we've been talking about in Europe, about believable debts, about collective action clauses. These are legal tools available out there that actually investors can discount ex ante and can actually be introduced in good times and will react counter-cyclically in bad times. And so, uh, yeah. you haven't said anything about that, I wonder whether you... No, if I may, I mean, the, the issue, and I think is the issue is not whether we can design the law to be counter-cyclical. I mean, we can do that. And you gave us examples. The question is whether we should be changing the law in, as a means of capturing the business cycle at the upturn and the downturn, because the, the whole point is about being predictable on both sides of the cycle. Uh, but yes, yeah, sorry, I, I, sure. I take your time. Yeah. So, just a, a, a few points. Uh, one is that... I, the reason I start off with the monetary policy stuff, particularly here, is to point out that when people are, don't like, like unpredictability and things like that when they say about the law, well, the, the European Central Bank is arguably, arguably violating its mandate. Uh, so it's a little, it, it's always to me like, let's realize like what the alternatives are here. Uh, it's not, you know, how about predictability in monetary policy? Uh, you know, like it's not, what is the alternative? So I, I just, I don't say this to say that, uh, you know, when we talk about tweaking regulation uh, or something like that, yes, it creates uncertainty, but so does, uh, so does OMT and QE and, uh, and things like that. So, so I, I just, I do that as much as anything to like set the stage. When economists don't like sort of what I'm doing with law, I say to them, well, what are your, you, what are you doing to your law? And it is, uh, it's, you know, these are at least as aggressive inter interpretations of, of law as anything I am suggesting, if not more. So I'll just, you know, I just want you to keep that in mind. That's, uh, that's one. Uh, secondly, uh, I would say that ultimately, I think these, like any, and, and this relates to, to all the questions, these are ultimately what, what promotes, what, what mitigates recessions is ultimately an empirical question, right? Like it is not, uh, and it depends on, you know, there's no government spending, for example, is not, you know, Keynes argued that it increased aggregate demand. Uh, and mitigate recessions, but of course we know that if you have like a Ricardian equivalent story or something like that, then, then it doesn't necessarily increase aggregate demand. It's ultimately an empirical question. I would say the same thing would be true about expansionary legal policy. Uh, everything I say, I, I'm making an argument for why I think it increases aggregate demand. If it could be shown that that was that that was not true, then it shouldn't be used in that regard. Uh, I would just argue that you know over time, you know we need to learn about what uh, what does and uh, and does not uh, what does and does not work. Uh, and then the last thing I, I would like to say in terms of of the things that have been asked is 
According to many sort of judges and lawyers I've spoken to, the law does change uh, with business cycle frequency. Uh, and so I would argue that making that explicit uh, actually increases certainty rather than the, if I am a creditor, uh, I want to know the terms under which I am lending. Uh, if it's going to turn out, rather than just having like a mortgage forgiveness, uh, sort of unilaterally as many people uh, have been arguing for, I think it would, be, it would increase certainty to know that under certain conditions, uh, the, you know, we're going to think differently about bankruptcy law rather than imposing something entirely ex post. Or, uh, or something like that. So, you know, it, it depends. There's, I would argue that the uncertainty comes from the economy and the society, uh, and saying that law needs to be constant in an ever-changing world is actually creating a lot of tension and making law sort of less predictable in its own way, rather than, uh, rather than more predictable. No, I mean, I, I, I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Mm -hmm. I, and I think your example mm -hmm. of, the, of the ECB is a very clear one. I mean, the mm -hmm. ECB became, at some point, mm -hmm. even encapsulated in the term whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. It means I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do because mm -hmm. I don't know, mm -hmm. but I will do whatever it mm -hmm. takes mm -hmm. uh, to counteract the shocks mm -hmm. that come to me that I know very little about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you like, unpredictability was desirable in some mm -hmm. ways because you're dealing with a one-in-a-lifetime type mm -hmm. of shock. Mm -hmm. That's not the issue. That you cannot really plan for everything, mm -hmm. and you need to allow for flexibility in the system mm -hmm. to manage the uncertainty as it comes to you. The question is, to the extent that you can't plan, mm -hmm. and, there, and then I see the law as the stability of the law and the predictability of the law as an important instrument mm -hmm. in providing for a constant business environment, mm -hmm. is something that should not, in my view, be jeopardized. Mm -hmm. um, because otherwise, exanded decisions of business development, mm -hmm. decisions that need to stay for the longer haul, mm -hmm. uh, will be totally compromised. Mm -hmm. Now, the fact that the, the world might turn out differently in five or ten years, of course the law needs to adopt to it. But if you compare the law to the macroeconomic instruments that we have, I would argue that the macroeconomic instruments are really much more real time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the law is not, and nor should it be. That or, or not, mm -hmm. question mark. I think that's okay. very much the... Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so what I would say is, yes, I, I, okay. I think that you I think know, this is only, I only want it to be used when, when other options are constrained. Yeah. Uh, I don't think, it, I, I think monetary policy is much better for cutting down mm -hmm. on inflation, for example. I, I don't think you should dream about using, uh, you know, it is not a, a tool for macroeconomic policy fine-tuning. Mm -hmm. It's a tool for, you know, when we have a big problem uh, sure. for using it. And, and you say that, like, of course the law changes. I don't think that's so obvious. You know, I think like mm -hmm. lawyers, you know, we have been taught, we don't talk very much about macroeconomics. Uh, we talk a decent amount about microeconomics in, in the US. But, you know, we don't really teach about the business cycle. So I think to lawyers and judges sort of arguing this sort of thing, mm -hmm. it's not obvious to them that it should respond to a crisis. <laughs> you know, I, I think the attitude is very much, that's the monetary authority's problem. You know, leave it to, and what, what, I, uh, what I argue is yes, but, uh, is, is the argument. And then one thing, I, a couple of things I realized I forgot to respond to. One is, I agree that it is best to get rid, uh, to avoid crises. 
uh, crises are very bad. Uh, and, uh, and what I'm saying here is an example of their, of their badness. You know, this is, this is ugly. Uh, but, but I'm just, I am pessimistic about our, I'm not pessimistic about our ability to reduce the frequency of crises. I am highly pessimistic about our ability to eliminate crises. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing that was asked was about the, about private law solutions. Uh, I am very much in favor. Of, uh, of private law solutions. I'm just skeptical, and I think those are great. Uh, I'm just, what law is often is filling in the gaps when private law solutions don't, uh, don't handle it. So then the question becomes, what does, I'll, I'll give you an example from US contract law. So in the US, we, there was actually a substantial amount, about 50 to $60 billion for uh, for mortgage write-downs uh, as part of the TARP program, which bailed out the banks. The only way TARP got passed was with, with some write-down, some public money for mortgage write-downs. Uh, about half that money was not spent, which in the US is, uh, I presume here too, normally when money is appropriated, uh, <laughs> it, it is spent. Uh, this did, and, it, and to the extent the money was spent, it happened very slowly. What went wrong? What went wrong was that the way U.S. mortgages were managed by servicers, by they were not the owners of the mortgages, they were third parties uh, who were managing it on behalf of a mortgage-backed security, and the way their contracts were written made it exceedingly difficult to renegotiate the loan because people were afraid of moral hazard. So what ended up happening is you get this really strange situation where people, where you have like hedge funds that own mortgage-backed securities that are coming to, that are arguing that we want to write down. We're the owner of, we're the creditor. We want to write down a mortgage because we recover less when, when there's a foreclosure. Uh, obviously, the lenders, uh, the borrowers wanted foreclosure. The government had money available to facilitate that process. It didn't happen. Why didn't it happen? Because of contract law. Uh, and contract law, so I would argue that contract law has doctrines like, ideally, the contract would have included a provision to handle this situation. But to expect that to always happen right. is unrealistic. I would argue that contract law should have adjusted. There are doctrines like public policy uh, that says that even retroactively? I'm sorry? Even retroactively? To have adjusted retroactively? Yes. Th that, uh, that the way you would interpret it said, like, this contract was not written with this situation in mind. Oh, I see. Uh, and in this situation, we are going to, to interpret this silence in a very particular way. We do that all the time oh. in, uh, in contract law. We don't want to do it too often. Yeah. But, uh, but like in this case, where both the creditors and the debtors and the government want to uh, yeah. want this sort of thing, you know, there's, there's like the law there was inimical, was, was fighting against sort of the broader yeah. policy. Uh, so we, we can't do this very often, hmm. right? This, uh, but here was a situation where there is, uh, there's room for, for something like that. And without teaching lawyers to at least consider macroeconomics, uh, it's, hard, uh, it's hard to make that argument. 
No, I think uh, that's great. Um, I'm aware of the time, actually, so unless there is a, a, another urgent question that needs to be asked, I think we need to stop here. Okay. I mean, we need to continue this conversation yes. because at some point, because there's very interesting things that we can do at the margins. But for the moment, Yari, uh, thank you so much for coming to Brussels, right. for coming to Bruegel, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I wish you best of luck with, uh, with the book. And please join me in thanking Yari for his uh, presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.